Welcome to Ryan Stitt's History of Ancient Greece podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. Ryan has been kind enough to give me the time to let you know who I am and what I'm about. I present a podcast called The History of the World Podcast. It's a no-thrills, no-gimmicks, information-only podcast about the incredible story of human history. We are currently exploring ancient Iraq, which admittedly is a couple of thousand years away and a couple of thousand miles away from ancient Greece. However, you may well find it of interest. So look me up on your favourite podcast platform. It's the History of the World podcast. And if you can't find me, you'll be able to find me on Spotify and iTunes. For now, I'm going to hand you back to the capable hands of Ryan, who tirelessly does everything he can to look after you and feed your grey matter with fantastic information. Enjoy the podcast and hope to see you soon. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 88, Thucydides and Periclean Politics. Today's episode is brought to you by our new January Patreon supporters, Sammy Lane and Justine, as well as PayPal donor Long Lost Pictures. Once again, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you too would like to support the history of ancient Greece, you can become a monthly Patreon supporter or a one-time donor. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. As we have seen throughout the last 40 or so episodes, the cultural achievements of the 6th and 5th centuries BC in Greece were substantial, but the difficulties that the various polis, or city-states, experienced in getting along with one another, and their aversion to uniting into a single political unit, would ultimately have a profound impact on the direction that Greek civilization would take in the latter part of the century. Traditionally, most Greek city-states had some form of oligarchical government, whose citizens mostly owned and farmed on small plots of land only to form up into hoplite phalanxes in order to battle neighboring Greek communities over disputed strips of borderland. In doing so, excluding their colonies, most Greeks had been unusually isolated from the turbulence of Mediterranean history up until the Persian Wars. But afterwards, the Greeks were faced with unforeseen military and political responsibilities in the Aegean and the Mediterranean at large, and these were largely antithetical to the traditional isolationist ideals of the farmer hoplite in most city-states. The two most atypical city-states, though, were Athens and Sparta. Oddly, both, though in diametrically opposite ways, rejected much of the traditional culture of the city-state. Instead of pitched battles by amateur infantries and an economic reliance on citizen-worked farms, the Athenians preferred to use their navy to secure their maritime trade network, and the Spartans had a professional class of soldiers free from agricultural duty thanks to the helots. These atypical poles were also the two most powerful, and naturally, they could not agree on joint leadership of the Greek world. This antagonism would set the stage for a horrific war like none other in the Greek past. The repercussions of this devastating war between Athens and Sparta and their allies, known traditionally as the Peloponnesian War, would change the Greek world and the civilization of the Greeks forever. The war involved not only the Greeks inhabiting the Aegean, but also entangled into the conflict other peoples such as the Persians, the Macedonians, the Thracians, and many Poles from Magna Graecia. It involved so many different kinds of people that from the Greek point of view, it must have seemed like a sort of world war. When the war broke out though, few must have foresaw that it would be different from any conflict they had ever experienced, or even imagined. 
but it would devolve into a war not like any other, as it caused enormous destruction of life and property, intensified factional and class hostilities, divided the Greek states internally, and ultimately destabilized the relationship of classes within cities and the relationships between cities. The war thus was a critical turning point in Greek history, altering the world that the Greeks knew in many respects, as the trauma occasioned by the war and its aftermath supplied the impetus for many of the social, political, and intellectual changes that we identify with the 4th century BC. The war's legacy, though, would not be the victory of Spartan authoritarianism and the repudiation of the imperial democratic culture of Athens, but the irrevocable exhaustion and bankruptcy of the Greek city-state itself. Because as we can see from historical hindsight, it made the capacity of the Greeks to resist an outside threat much weaker and helped to bring about a situation in which they finally lost their independence and their autonomy. Of course, this would be the Macedonians, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, but it's always important to keep in mind the big picture, even as we're traversing the weeds. The principal source who describes the Peloponnesian War is a contemporary Athenian general and historian named Thucydides. He probably lived from around 460 to 395 BC, which has been deduced from a statement that he made in his work, saying that he lived through the entirety of the Peloponnesian War and was at an age that he understood what was happening, as well as by the fact that he was a strategos in 424 BC, a post which the minimum age was probably 30. In addition, most of the reliable information that we know about specific events in his life comes from his own work, which are sprinkled into his narrative. Interestingly, when he does discuss himself, it's from a third-person, omniscient narrator point of view. He was born in Halamis, one of the deems of Attica that borders the Saronic Gulf. Thucydides himself mentions that his father's name was Aloris, and the only other Aloris on the historical record is mentioned by Herodotus as the king of Thrace, whose daughter, Hegesipoli, married Miltiades, and whose grandson was Chimon. Since the father's name often gets passed down to sons or sometimes grandsons, scholars have conjectured that Thucydides came from an aristocratic family that had distant kinship ties on his father's side to Miltiades. Essentially, he was probably related by blood both to Thracian royalty and to Chimon. In addition, another Thucydides who lived before the historian was also linked with Thrace, making a family connection between them very likely as well and it was probably likely that Thucydides was also a family name, like Aloris. Adding to this theory is that Thucydides' wife was from Thrace, and he himself inherited gold mines at Skopte Hyle in the region of the Strymon River, opposite of the island of Thassos, which was the source of his financial well-being and independence. Combining all of the fragmentary evidence available, it seems that his family had owned a large estate in Thrace, one that even contained gold mines, and which allowed the family considerable and lasting affluence. The security and continued prosperity of the wealthiest state must have necessitated formal ties with local kings or chieftains, which might be another explanation for the adoption of the distinctly Thracian royal name Aloris into the family. Regardless, due to his family's wealth, Thucydides was able to attend classes given by the sophists and then to devote himself to lengthy historical research and to the writing of his work. Among his teachers were the philosopher Anaxagoras, the sophist Gorgias and Prodicus, and the orator Antiphon. Despite the fact that Thucydides did not necessarily approve of the sophistic and rhetorical movements that were flowing through Athens at his time, all of his teachers would contribute substantially to his thinking and character. For example, his knowledge of the human body shows that he was at least familiar with some of the teachings found in the corpus of the Hippocratic medical writings. The sophists probably shaped his skeptical ideas concerning justice and morality, and his views on nature revolving around the factual, empirical, and the non-anthropomorphic suggest the influence of the philosopher Anaxagoras. As we have discussed in many of the previous episodes, the period during which Thucydides came of age was characterized by astonishing intellectual fervor and a vibrant cultural climate. During these years, his older contemporaries, Herodotus, Sophocles, and Euripides, all flourished in Athens, and new learning and ideas were being spread through the teaching of the Sophists and Socrates. Pericles himself had friends amongst the intellectual company, such as Phidias, Protagoras, and Anaxagoras. Interestingly, Thucydides, who was related to Miltiades and Chimon, and was no lover of radical democracy, had an enormous admiration for and was one of Pericles' biggest supporters, because he had recognized how much Athens had achieved under Pericles' leadership. Despite the opportunity for profitable overseas ventures and military victories that could come from Athens' imperial democratic culture, 
Wealthier Athenians, like Thucydides, probably felt more at home with an aristocratic government that had once been the private domain of property owners. As a moderate oligarch then, he was skeptical of unpredictable Democrats and any others who championed a more radically egalitarian agenda that might diminish the power of Athens' upper classes. For Thucydides, democracy worked best when nominal and under the control of a single great man, like Pericles, and he showed a marked distaste for the demagogic politicians Cleon and Hyperbolus, who followed Pericles' death. Speaking of which, Thucydides was one of the few to have caught the plague in 430-429 BC, and then to have recovered, the same plague that killed Pericles and countless others. He was elected as one of the ten strategoi, or generals, in 424 BC, and because of his influence in Thrace, he was entrusted with command of the fleet in the Thracian region, opposite the island of Thassos. However, it was unfortunate for him that he was pitted against Brasidas, one of Sparta's best military commanders, who led a daring assault on Amphipolis. Since he was near Thassos, he was unable to reach Amphipolis in time. And so, because he failed to prevent the Spartans from capturing the city, the angry Athenians recalled him, and he was charged with treason and was sentenced to exile. According to Marcellinus, Cleon was connected with Thucydides' exile. Marcellinus was a 6th century AD biographer who wrote a life of Thucydides. Although his work was based on passages and earlier writers, plus his own observations, because he lived so long after Thucydides, the statements of Marcellinus must be treated with caution. As we will see, though, Thucydides' presentation of events is generally even-handed. For example, he does not minimize the negative effect of his own failure at Amphipolis. Occasionally, though, strong passions do break through, as in his scathing appraisals of the democratic leaders Cleon and Hyperbolus, who followed after Pericles. So it is entirely possible that Cleon may have had a role in his exile. Thucydides spent most of his exile back on his estate in Thrace. And given his ample income coming in from the gold mines, he was able to dedicate himself to full-time history writing and research, including many fact-finding trips. In essence, he was a well-connected gentleman of considerable resources who, after involuntarily retiring from the political and military spheres, decided to fund his own historical investigations. During these trips, he visited places in which important military operations had taken place in the Peloponnese and Sicily. As an exile, he was permitted to come into contact with the Spartans and their allies and to learn their views about various matters related to the war, and so he was able to get the perspective of both sides. Although he was able to gather a great deal of information about the war from non-Athenian sources, as an exile though, he was no longer able to attend meetings of the Athenian Ecclesia. He only returned to Athens after they were defeated in 404 BC. Because according to Pausanias, someone named Anobius was able to get a motion to pass that rescinded his exiled status. Pausanias goes on to say that Thucydides was murdered on his way back to Athens, though most scholars doubt this account. He probably died at some point between 400 to 395 BC, as there is evidence to suggest that he lived during the early 390s BC based on a recently discovered inscription from Thassos. Regardless of when he died though, he probably spent the last years of his life on his estate in Thrace, where he continued to write his famous history of the Peloponnesian War, which in the end destroyed the Athens that he knew and loved. However, as we will see, Thucydides died unexpectedly while writing his work, and so it remained unfinished, or at least it did not cover the final events of the war. When he finally died, Plutarch claims that his remains were returned to Athens and placed in Cimon's family vault. Thucydides' only work is titled The History of the Peloponnesian War, but this was given to it later by Hellenistic grammarians working in the Library of Alexandria. They also were likely responsible for dividing it into eight books, covering the period from 479 to 411 BC, though his account of the years before 433 BC, scattered throughout Book 1, is not as detailed as his narrative of the war itself and the tensions that immediately followed in the decades that preceded the outbreak of the war. Included is a brief historical account of Greece from the earliest times up to his day, in which Thucydides sets out to prove that the Peloponnesian War was the greatest war in Greek history, and to stress the important link between sea power and imperial success. In the rest of Book 1, he seeks to explain why the Peloponnesian War broke out, with two short digressions. In the first, the so-called Pentacontatia, 
or the 50 years. Thucydides gives a very brief and highly selective account of the development of Athenian power from the end of the Persian War to the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War. And in the second, Thucydides relays the downfall of Pausanias and Themistocles, the most famous of the Greek leaders in the Persian War. The remainder of his history, books 2 through 8, maintains a focus on the Peloponnesian War. His work is dense and complex, and those who have read it in the ancient Greek can tell you that his prose is also very challenging, both grammatically and syntactically, and at times it seems nearly incomprehensible. His use of abstract nouns, his preference for constant variety in vocabulary, his fondness for archaic and even poetic expressions, and his often dramatic inversion of normal word order all ensure that his Greek is as complex as is his method of historical inquiry. Yet we must bear in mind that very little Attic prose written before Thucydides has survived, so we cannot be sure if his perplexing language is unique or typical, or whether it reveals an entirely original method of expression, or simply mirrors the spirited intellectual ferment and experimentation of the times. Thucydides claims to have begun writing as soon as the war broke out in 431 BC, believing that the Peloponnesian War represented an event of unmatched importance as it offered a unique look at two extreme points of view of not only Greek, but human experience. On the one hand, Athens and Sparta were states in a real war with each other, but in many respects they also were metaphysical representations of polar opposite civilizations. And so through the backdrop of the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides was able to comment on these two unique ideologies. His intention in doing so was to write a full and comprehensive account of all the military and political events of the war, which would serve, quote, not as an essay which is to win applause at the moment, but as a possession for all time, end quote. In formulating his account, Thucydides employed a strict standard of chronology, recording events by year with each year consisting of the summer campaign season and a less active winter season. This method contrasts sharply with Herodotus, who worked in loose chronological terms, with many digressions along the way. As such, he also claims to have, quote, recorded the events of the war, one after another, as they happened, by summer and winter, end quote. Regardless of what Thucydides claims, scholars differ over when he actually wrote his account. Some hold the view that he gathered his information during the war, but the whole work was written over a short period after the war ended, while others believe Thucydides and contend that the work was being continuously written and revised the entire time. Those in the camp who believe that he wrote it after the war are aided by the fact that his work was cut short by his death. In fact, his work ends abruptly in mid-sentence. And so, since his account ends with Book 8, which details events during 413 to 411 BC. It does not elaborate on the final conflicts in the last seven years of the war. If he had been writing it the whole time, then it should have ended with 404 BC, unless there are unpublished manuscripts or missing books out there somewhere. There also were rumors in antiquity that his daughter preserved the unfinished manuscript and gave it to his younger contemporary Xenophon to edit. Whatever the truth is, those final seven years of the war would be continued by Xenophon, whose Hellenica narrates events from 411 to 362 BC. And as we will discuss shortly, Xenophon's work was a part of a larger 4th century BC trend that tried to finish Thucydides' account, though his is the only one that survives in full, which makes it an invaluable source for the end of the Peloponnesian War and its aftermath. Despite the incompleteness of his account, scholars throughout history, by common consensus, have agreed that Thucydides is one of the greatest historians ever. His greatest quality lies in the intellectual rigor that he brought to his craft, as he applied serious scientific methodology to the gathering of material and the interpretation of historical events. Thucydides is the second historian that we know about in all of history, only behind Herodotus in terms of chronology. Though unlike Herodotus, he wrote about certain events in which he actually took part in firsthand. But like Herodotus, he also placed a high value on eyewitness testimony, consulted written documents, such as the city's archives, their official records, treaties, and so forth, and interviewed participants about the events that he recorded. Thucydides evaluated all of his sources, though, with the same criteria, and he discusses this criteria and his methodology at the outset of his history, stressing the lengths to which he went in his quest to determine the truth about the events that he described. Quote, With regard to the facts of the events that took place in the war, I have made it my principle to report them, 
not through learning of them from the first person I happened upon, nor from what seemed probable to me, but after investigating with as much accuracy as possible each event in which I myself participated or in which other eyewitnesses were directly involved. End quote. By setting down the standard, Thucydides also expresses his impatience with those less committed to what he calls the search for knowledge. In doing so, he complains that most people expand very little effort on the search for truth and prefer to turn to ready-made answers. By contrasting himself with less reliable reporters, Thucydides levels stern criticism at those who preceded him, without actually mentioning any names, for what he regarded as inaccuracies that demonstrated their superficiality. Of course, we know he was talking about the logographers and Herodotus, as well as the rhetoricians and sophists, whose works were meant to be heard, not read, and thus were prone to exaggeration and falsehoods. However, despite Thucydides' lack of trust in information that was not experienced firsthand, he does use the epics of Homer frequently as a source of information, though he always adds a distancing clause, such as, Homer shows this, if that is sufficient evidence, and, assuming we should trust Homer's poetry in this case, too. Thucydides makes sure to inform his reader, though, that he, unlike Homer, is not a poet prone to exaggeration, but instead a historian, whose stories may not give momentary pleasure, but whose intended meaning will be challenged by the truth of the facts. By distancing himself from the storytelling practices of Homer, Thucydides makes it clear that while he does consider mythology and epics to be evidence, these works cannot be given much credibility, and that it takes an impartial and empirically-minded historian such as himself, to accurately portray the events of the past. Thucydides' information must be taken on trust, though, since he does not name his oral sources, nor does he provide how many and which material sources were used for each event. In addition, like with all ancient sources, some caution must also be used with Thucydides, since he even himself admits that eyewitness accounts are not always trustworthy, either through partisanship or faulty memories. In the same way, caution must be taken when Thucydides attributes motives to various individuals in his history, especially as he explains them so confidently and rarely admitting any doubt. He seems to have used three methods when attributing motive. The first and the most reliable method was to gain information directly from the individual concerned, or from that person's close associates. The second was his deduction of motive from the behavior or action of the individual. The third and most unreliable method was his assumption of motive based on his own assessment of the individual's character, and it's with his character portrayals where we must also use caution, because for Thucydides, there are clear heroes and villains. To a modern audience, steeped in the behavioral and social sciences, Thucydides can appear to miss nuances in human temperament, concentrating instead on objective and absolute criteria. In his eyes, human behavior is not predicated on or explained by one specific environment or upbringing, but instead by the play of chance, fate, and hope upon a person's innate character, as conditions universal to all and particular to no one. The ambiguity of one's thought and intent is scarcely appreciated in his broad strokes of character portrayals. Intention counts for little, and action is everything. And so he has been criticized by many scholars for deducing one's character and motive based on their actions alone. The thorniest problem when it comes to Thucydides, though, concerns the authenticity of his speeches, the use of which is a noteworthy difference between his method of writing history and that of modern historians. Within the context of a predominantly oral culture that was ancient Greece, Thucydides often included lengthy formal speeches that were literary reconstructions rather than verbatim quotations of what was said. He did this because, as he wrote in his work, quote, it has been difficult for me to remember the exact words that were spoken in the speeches that I myself heard, and for those who brought me reports of other speeches. Therefore, it has been my method to record the words which I thought were the most appropriate for each speaker to give in each situation, while keeping as close as possible to the general sense of what was actually said." End quote. These speeches include addresses given to troops by their generals before battles, and numerous political speeches, both by Athenian and Spartan leaders as well as debates between various parties and envoys delivering messages. Thucydides undoubtedly heard some of these speeches himself, while for others he relied on eyewitness accounts. While there are certain speeches whose authenticity does seem very suspect, in reality there's no way of assessing how much Thucydides adapted, added to, or even invented the speeches in his history. Arguably, though, had he not done this, the gist of what was said would not otherwise be known at all 
Whereas today, there is a plethora of documentation, such as written records, archives, and recording technology, for historians to consult to know what was actually said. Despite all of these hesitations, though, Thucydides is often described as the world's first scientific historian, and as such has been dubbed as the father of history by those who accept the claims which he outlined in the introduction to his work. As such, he has been seen to have applied strict standards of impartiality on evidence gathering and on his analysis of cause and effect without reference to intervention by the deities. Despite being an Athenian and an active participant for a time in the conflict, Thucydides is often regarded by scholars as having written a generally unbiased account of the war with respect to the sides involved in it, though he does show a clear distaste for certain people involved, such as Cleon, as we have mentioned. Thucydides also does tell the story, at least in the early part of the build-up to the war, and the war itself, very much from Pericles' viewpoint, and in doing so, he also reports three of Pericles' speeches, without reporting any of those made by his opponents on those occasions, with the result that the reader sees the situation through Pericles' eyes only. Finally, he often comes down firmly and powerfully on the side of Pericles, and against all of his critics. Still though, despite these criticisms, Thucydides is often lauded for his objectivity, but this characterization rests on a misunderstanding of what historiography, or the writing of history, really involves. History is not a science, and it cannot be objective, because it entails humans writing about other humans. Every omission and every connection requires a judgment call, and there is no limit to the number of decisions that confront historians. The consequences of some of Thucydides' choices in what he included and excluded in his histories is that if he was incorrect in any of his information, it is now very difficult for students of the past to reconstruct what really happened. Herodotus, on the other hand, typically passes no definitive judgment on what he has heard. In the case of conflicting or unlikely accounts, Herodotus presents both sides, says what he believes, and then invites readers to decide for themselves. One consequence of this decision, though, is that he has been criticized for being less analytical than Thucydides, who was a revisionist historian that aimed to set straight myths and facts, which he deemed wrong. And so Thucydides presented no ulterior views of events, and only gave the necessary facts and the conclusions that he drew. We discussed his methodological criticisms, but from the historiographic point of view, Thucydides' account of the Peloponnesian War also has a few serious weaknesses, the biggest being his lack of coverage of Persian involvement in the war and his limited and superficial treatment of economic and social factors. For example, he only occasionally gives us a glimpse into the countryside during the fighting, which is odd because this area was where the majority of the Greek population lived and suffered during the war. It could be explained that the drain, both psychologically and emotionally, on the people who waged the war is omitted by Thucydides because he primarily intended to write a strictly military chronicle, not a comprehensive history. And that's fine, but at the same time, he had a curious and limited angle of vision, as slaves and women are scarcely mentioned, though they played a crucial military role during times of sieges. Some slaves were employed as rowers on the triremes of both sides and no hoplite army could easily march without slaves to carry both their equipment and supplies. So his history almost deals exclusively with the military and political chronicles of the free male citizenry body, a group that constituted perhaps no more than a quarter of the population. Finally, Thucydides also admits discussion of the arts, literature, or the cultural backdrop in which the events in his book took place, and in which he grew up. In this regard, Herodotus is by far the more inquisitive historian when it comes to the role that culture plays in a people's political and military conduct. For someone who has an interest in formal polarities of thought and action, this is one way, then, in which he is dwarfed by Herodotus. And so Thucydides' concentration on political and military affairs is not a comprehensive account of the war. Both Plutarch and Diodorus Siculus, as well as official documents written on stone, show us that many more events went on than what we are told by Thucydides. Still, despite his inadequacies and omissions, no account of the Peloponnesian War in general is as complete as Thucydides. Since we have hammered Thucydides pretty hard and have discussed the many inadequacies of his work, let's now turn to what he did well and why he is noteworthy. 
At the big picture level, let's first talk about what separated his worldview with that of Herodotus to give us insight into why he included and excluded what he did. To begin, Thucydides saw himself as recording an event, not a period, and so he went to considerable lengths to exclude what he deemed frivolous or extraneous, as we have mentioned. Herodotus, on the other hand, recorded not only the events of the Persian Wars, but also geographical and ethnographical information, as well as the fables related to him during his extensive travels. Herodotus views history as a source of moral lessons, in which conflicts and wars are misfortunes flowing from initial acts of injustice and perpetuate it through cycles of revenge. He had the luxury, though, of writing up a war, the Persian War, in which the so-called good guys won. But the Peloponnesian War was one that everyone lost, and so Thucydides rejects any moralizing and setting out historical events. He views life exclusively as political life, and history in terms of political history. Conventional moral considerations play no role in his analysis of political events, while geographic and ethnographic aspects are omitted, or at best, of secondary importance. While the anecdotes of Herodotus often teach that hubris invites the wrath of the deities, Thucydides did not acknowledge that divine justice was a force in history, and so he excludes any supernatural explanations for outcomes in human affairs. Instead, he regards history as being caused by the choices and actions of human beings. Thucydides' history mainly concentrates on the military aspects of the Peloponnesian War, but he often uses these events as a medium to discuss the socially and culturally degenerative effects of war on humanity itself. In doing so, he developed an understanding of human nature to explain their behavior in such crises as plagues, massacres, and war. His history is especially concerned with the lawlessness and atrocities committed by the Greeks to each other in the name of one side or another in the war. Thucydides was moved by the suffering inherent in war and concerned about the excesses to which human nature is prone in such circumstances, and at one point he includes the phrase polemos biaios didaskalos, or war is a violent teacher. The Peloponnesian War saw unprecedented brutality in Greek life, violating even the already rugged code that had previously governed Greek fighting, and at times breaking through that thin veneer that often separates civilization from savagery. Anger, frustration, and the desire for vengeance increased as the fighting dragged on for almost three decades, producing a progression of atrocities that included maiming and killing captured opponents, throwing them into pits to die of thirst, starvation and exposure in Sicily, and hurling them into the sea to drown, which became the practice towards the end of the war. One reason being that in the past, wars had been short, and Thucydides makes it clear that the longer a war persists, the more inevitable is the sinking below the civilized levels of warfare, to a much more horrible way of fighting. Although Thucydides' history is preoccupied with the interplay of justice and power in political and military decision-making, his presentation is decidedly ambivalent on this theme. While he seems to suggest that considerations of justice are artificial and necessarily capitulates to power, it sometimes also shows a significant degree of empathy with those who suffer from the difficulties of the war. In addition, some events depicted, such as the Melian Dialogue, describe early instances of Realpolitik, which is a German word that literally means real politics. Essentially, though, it's a pragmatic form of politics or diplomacy based on one's current circumstances and factors rather than an explicit ideology based on moral and ethical premises. And so for his understanding of politics and its impact on human affairs, Thucydides has been called the father of the school of political realism, which views the political behavior of individuals and the subsequent outcomes of relations between states as ultimately mediated by and constructed upon the emotions of fear and self-preservation. Thucydides' own way of thinking about history, war, politics, international relations, and the behavior of human beings has had such a great influence on those who came after him. In fact, he left such an undeniable mark that even his immediate successors saw history as largely the unromantic story of political and military affairs, and subsequent ancient historians were judged largely by the degree to which they followed the canons of accuracy and integrity established by Thucydides. Xenophon, for example, is faulted for not equaling Thucydides in either analytical capacity or narrative skill. We will talk much more about Xenophon in a future episode, but he is often compared to Thucydides since it takes both of their works to conclude the Peloponnesian War. 
Although he did not actively participate in the war, afterwards he did have the advantage of friendship with leading Spartans, including their king Agesilus, and during the course of his trek through Asia Minor that he described in the Anabasis, he certainly would have heard war stories of soldiers and officers from cities other than Athens. He made that journey because he was hired as a mercenary commander in charge of 10,000 to fight on one side of a Persian civil war. Still though, when compared to the genius of Thucydides, Xenophon fails at understanding the larger meaning of the very events that he describes, and he seems to have viewed his histories as not much more than one personal memoir. He also is criticized for his failure to consult sources other than his own Spartan confidants, which he had gained because after his return to Greece, he was exiled from Athens, and so he moved to the Peloponnesus. And his sons were apparently educated according to the Spartan system. Nevertheless, Thucydides is by far the best of our literary sources, and when there is a conflict with other accounts, scholars typically prefer his version, and he writes with such authority that even modern historians often struggle to challenge his conclusions. As far as the other sources that we have for the Peloponnesian War, in addition to the aforementioned works of Xenophon, we also have the Library of History by Diodorus Siculus, written during the 1st century BC. Although he is generally not considered to be a great historian, and his work does not add much significance to our understanding of the war in most cases, as he is often using Thucydides as his only source, in some instances he does draw information from other historians from the 4th and 3rd centuries BC that are now lost, and so because of this he remains somewhat useful. Despite being even later in the 2nd century AD, Plutarch is also helpful in this respect, as some of his biographies, such as those of Pericles, Nicias, Alcibiades, and Lysander, incorporate a great deal of information from historians whose work is lost. Included among those are Cratippus, Theopompus, Ephorus, Timaeus, Philistus, plus others. Although they lacked the first-hand knowledge of Thucydides, they had the benefit of looking back on an event that was completed and could draw lessons with historical hindsight and looking at the bigger picture. We will discuss these men in future episodes. In addition, a good number of inscriptions survived that shed light on the financial and diplomatic workings of the Athenian Empire, and we have quite a bit of literature that is not considered historiography from this time period that are really beneficial at times such as the works of tragedy and comedy from the playwrights Euripides and Aristophanes. Several of their plays can be viewed as possible commentaries on what it was like to live in Athens during different events of the war. Also, some of the flavor of intellectual life in Athens can be gathered from the dialogues of Plato and Xenophon, which offer imaginative reconstructions of conversations that Socrates held in Athens during the war with fellow Athenians, medics, and visiting foreigners. Finally, court speeches from Lysias and Andocides shine some light on the later years of the war and its aftermath. But on the whole, our ability to understand the war completely is hindered by the lack of authentic Spartan sources. Just like with the Persians in the Persian Wars, one consequence of the Spartans' aversion to writing literature is that the Peloponnesian War derives its name in modern scholarship because it is known primarily through Athenian sources, and thus Athenian eyes, as the War of Athens against the Peloponnesians, although most of the battles were fought outside the Peloponnesus. Before we can begin our discussion about what led to the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War, we first need to discuss the domestic political scene in Athens, because that too will play an important role during the lead-up to the war, as well as the war itself. We have already discussed some of this at length in episode 40, but it is important to make note of it again in order to stress the nature of Athenian politics and of political organizations in the 5th century BC. Most importantly, there were no political parties in the modern sense with distinctive political philosophies and party structures. Political groupings in Athens centered on certain outstanding individuals, usually wealthy aristocrats, though that would change somewhat in the later half of the century. The ancient writers refer to these factions as those around so-and-so, and the core of a typical faction would be constituted of relatives, close friends, and immediate supporters. So in a society that lacked political parties and their organizational structures, Philia, or political friendship, was absolutely critical as the basis of political organization. However, one could not just rely upon his filii alone. And so political success for an ambitious politician depended upon him reaching out to a wider constituency and attracting outsiders to his policies, 
This required good oratorical skills, generosity to one's fellow citizens, success in military affairs and in public service, and a charismatic personality. A beneficial marriage arrangement could also bring the support of another powerful faction. In addition, coalitions were often formed between two factions, usually to achieve a specific political objective. But these coalitions were fleeting, because as soon as the immediate political objective had been achieved, they would often split and form coalitions with other factions in pursuit of a different aim. It's through this constant flux and interaction between the factions that the personalities and political issues in the Peloponnesian War must be understood. And there existed way more than just two political factions, and there weren't just a few prominent individuals who were the only important politicians in Athens. It's just that the literary sources only really focus on a few prominent politicians of the first rank, and either dismiss or diminish the standing of others, who sometimes are only known from the finds of Ostraca. While Pericles could be considered the de facto leader of Athens from the mid-440s BC to the time of his death, this doesn't mean that he was the unchallenged leader of Athens, but only that he was the most influential in shaping Athenian policy. And as we will see, Pericles was not without any challenges or criticisms in the policies that he guided. As we discussed in episode 42, with the backdrop of the First Peloponnesian War, Pericles and Cimon were willing to put aside their differences and formed a political alliance between their factions. This allowed Cimon to pursue his traditional anti-Persian policy and to utilize his outstanding skills as a military general. And in return, he accepted the constitutional reforms of Ephialtes and Pericles, which allowed Pericles preeminence in domestic policy. However, with the death of Cimon and peace with the Persians, this led to a major shift by Pericles in the early 440s BC. In particular, it was his change in foreign policy, being more anti-Spartan, and his use of the allies Phoros in the post-Persian war period, that led to the breakup of the coalition. In particular, the Periclean building program became increasingly unpopular amongst the conservative faction of Cimon's kinsmen, who were personally and openly hostile to Pericles. This was especially so after the decree of Pericles that authorized the immediate use of 5,000 talents, and a further 3,000 talents later, on his building program and the commencement of the building of the Parthenon in 447 BC. It could also be that the real underlying issue here was really about foreign policy, as the conservatives rejected Pericles' policy of peace with Persia and his diversion of valuable financial resources from campaigning against the Persians. However, the most likely aspect that disturbed the conservative faction is that Pericles' proposals to use public funds on this building program was also creating economic security for the lower classes. Earlier reforms by Pericles, as laid out in episode 44, had set a precedent of misthophoria, or the payment for public service, which especially was beneficial for the poor. But Pericles' recent proposals for the use of public funds to create a emisthos polos, or a city of wage earners, went much farther, and no doubt was the issue that caused the greatest fear and hostility amongst the wealthy. That's because resources of the state were now funding these public works and were paying the poor to perform them, whereas before it had been funded by the wealthy in the form of liturgies, or private benefactions, to the Athenian people. It was through these liturgies that the wealthy were able to encourage a grateful electorate to give them a near monopoly on all of the top political positions. The building of the long walls had already caused security concerns for the elite, as it gave the urban lower classes military security, but it left the landed estates of the rich vulnerable to invasion. But now, economic security, provided by the state, removed their last political advantage, which could gain them popularity and thus election to office. This marked a watershed moment in Athenian politics. The re-emergence of class division and conflict would culminate in the ideological clash, or stasis, between democrats and oligarchs after Pericles' death in the 420s BC. The term demos, up until that point, had covered the whole political body, whether wealthy or poor. But now, the term acquired political and factional overtones, and was used to describe the masses or the common people, especially the poor. In a radical democracy, this huge majority of citizens could impose its legislative will against the wishes of the upper class. 
In response, the upper class itself began to change back as they had in the past into having a more aristocratic identity, and so they used language once again to reflect their perceived moral and political superiority over the lower classes. This would culminate in the political pamphlet of the so-called Old Oligarch, a treatise breaking down the Athenian constitution that was written by an anonymous author, sometimes called Pseudo-Xenophon because it was once wrongly attributed to Xenophon. Although some have dated it to as early as 443 BC, some scholars believe it was written at some point in the 420s BC, during the demagogueries of Cleon and Hyperbolus. In it, you find words referring to the wealthy classes as Kaloi Kagathoi, the noble and the good, Aristoi, the best men, Eugenice, the well-born, Gnorimoi, the notables, and Crestoi, the useful. By contrast, the contempt for the lower classes is shown in such descriptions as Oklos, the mob, Penetes, the poor, Poneroi, the worthless, Phaloi, the vulgar, and Deloi, the cowardly. This all compares very similarly to that which we saw in much of the poetry of the Archaic period. Of course, we are getting ahead of ourselves here, but it was this mob, using its political muscle in the Ecclesia, which would be used throughout the 440s and 430s BC in order for Pericles to pass his proposed legislation and thereby assert his faction's political dominance in Athenian affairs. While nobody was still alive from the time of the tyranny of the Pisistratids, it was still remembered with fear by those in the upper classes, as they and their property were most at risk in a coup. So Pericles' policies and tactics roused their suspicions about his ultimate intentions. According to Plutarch, quote, The aristocrats, seeing that Pericles was already the most important man amongst the citizens, wanted to set someone up in opposition to him in the city and to blunt his power so that it did not become a total one-man rule, end quote. That man would be Thucydides, son of Milesius, not the historian of the same name. He was born in the Attic Deem of Alopica and was from noble stock, as he was a relative of Chimon, and therefore seems to be related somehow to Thucydides the historian. After Chimon's death, he succeeded him in the leadership of the conservative faction. Unlike Chimon, though, who was always much better with carrying on the affairs of war than speaking in the Agora, Thucydides was a charismatic statesman and less of a general. It seems likely that Thucydides' ultimate goal, which he could not state openly as doing so would alienate the pro-democratic majority, was to roll back the constitutional changes made by Ephialtes and to reinstate the more aristocratic and conservative government that had prevailed in Chimon's day. Thucydides' political strength reached its peak in the wake of the First Peloponnesian War and the reorganization of the Athenian Empire in the early 440s BC, which we discussed in episode 43. The ensuing political clash is relayed in three chapters of Plutarch's Life of Pericles. Although they are without a doubt dramatically presented, including much moralizing and rhetoric as Plutarch likes to do, it's still reasonable to believe the underlying foundation of fact that the conservative and democratic factions confronted each other frequently and passionately in the Ecclesia, but the details should be taken with a grain of salt. Plutarch says that, quote, by wrestling bouts with Pericles on the bema, he soon brought the administration into even poise, end quote. The bema is the platform from which orators spoke in the Athenian Ecclesia, and so Thucydides and Pericles frequently squared off in rhetorical bouts in the 440s BC. According to Plutarch, Thucydides developed a new and effective political tactic by having his supporters sit together in the Ecclesia, increasing their apparent strength and giving them a united voice. This helped Thucydides mount a concerted opposition to Pericles' mob. This brought to light the ideological differences among Pericles' supporters and those of the conservatives. Although he came from their ranks as a wealthy elite, Pericles' opposition to the upper classes and his champion of the needs of the poor had, in their eyes, all the hallmarks of tyranny. In one meeting in the Ecclesia in 444 BC, Although not mentioned by name, Thucydides is clearly the leading protagonist in accusing Pericles for his abuse of allied funds. Plutarch writes, quote, They said that the Greeks must be insulted by this appalling act of arrogance and consider it to be clear-cut tyranny when they see us covering our city with gold and beautifying it with the tribute taken from them by force for the war against Persia, end quote. 
Thucydides was not criticizing Pericles for the collection of Phoros, nor for the possession of an empire. Chimon had, after all, been the architect of its creation. But for the way that Pericles was spending state money, as he considered it immoral to use allied Phoros to finance an Athenian building program. Of course, we already discussed the real reason why the conservatives were against this policy. Anyways, Thucydides gave such a rousing speech that he managed to incite the passions of those in the ecclesia in his favor. When Pericles arose to speak and to defend himself against these accusations, he responded resolutely. He stressed that the allies paid for protection, and so long as the Athenians fulfilled this obligation, they had every right to use the surplus income for the benefit of Athens. On another occasion in the Ecclesia, when Thucydides and his party denounced Pericles yet again for playing fast and loose with the public money and annihilating the revenues for his building program, Pericles turned to the people and asked them if they thought that he had spent far too much. When the people basically told him that he did, he proposed to reimburse the city for all of the expenses from his own private property. Under the terms, though, that he would make the dedicatory inscriptions on the public buildings in his name only. Meaning that Pericles alone, and not the city of Athens, would receive glory from it. His stance was greeted with applause, and the people cried out with a loud voice that he can take freely from the public funds for his program. And so Thucydides suffered an unexpected but humiliating defeat to the charismatic Pericles. The split between the two factions had by now become very distinguishable, and in these circumstances, there was always a danger that this political division might undermine the stability of the state. Fortunately, the Athenians possessed an effective method of resolving such political problems in the form of ostracism. But much to the conservative surprise, over the winter of 444-443 BC, Thucydides found himself ostracized and not Pericles. The result was that Pericles became once again the unchallenged authority in the Athenian political arena. Plutarch relates an anecdote that when Thucydides was asked by Sparta's king, Archidamus II, if he or Pericles was a better fighter, Thucydides answered without any hesitation that Pericles was a better fighter because even when he is defeated, he is able to convince the audience that he had won. And Thucydides is mentioned later in Aristophanes' Wasps as an example of a defendant who is silenced by the overwhelming power of his accuser's arguments. Following the ostracism of Thucydides, we enter into a period that scholars often refer to as Periclean Athens, because for the next 14 years, until his death in 429 BC, Pericles and his policies dominated the political scene at Athens. Thucydides writes, quote, For as long as Pericles had the leadership of the city in peacetime, the city was wisely led and safely guarded, and it was at its greatest under him. End quote. Thucydides had the greatest respect for Pericles and considered his leadership, based upon his sterling qualities of intelligence, integrity, incorruptibility, and strength of character, to be cast into the traditional aristocratic mold. In his opinion, it was Pericles' less well-born and less well-bred successors who adopted methods of demagoguery in their ambitious pursuit of the leadership of the demos that brought about the defeat of Athens. However, other literary sources strongly disagree with Thucydides' assessment of Pericles. For example, in Plato's Gorgias, Socrates says, quote, But tell me this, are the Athenians said to have become better because of Pericles, or exactly the opposite, to have been corrupted by him? I've heard that Pericles made them lazy, cowardly, talkative, and greedy by being the first to introduce state pay, end quote. It should be noted, though, that Plato, who himself was from the upper classes, was a harsh critic of democracy because the will of the people can easily be swayed by popular leaders. So in Plato's view, through Socrates, Pericles was as much of a demagogue as his successors, and his leadership was achieved and maintained by manipulating and corrupting the demos. When Plutarch wrote his Life of Pericles in the 1st or 2nd century AD, he was faced with these two conflicting traditions, and so he attempted to resolve the dilemma by dividing Pericles' character into two distinctive periods, a demagogic phase from the assassination of Ephialtes and his ascendancy until Thucydides' ostracism, and a second statesman-like phase until his death. While such a sharp, dramatic change of leadership style is an explanation that is too simplistic and without nuance, Plutarch is right to see the dual nature of Pericles as both a factional leader who advocates popular policies to win over the support of the demos, and as a loftier, aristocratic statesman who proposes policies for the good of the whole of Athens. 
You certainly could say that in the earliest part of his career, as he struggled to make a name for himself against other aspiring politicians, that he could appear demagogic. But as Pericles' policies and advice over the years proved second to none, his status as a leader grew, and there was a natural evolution in his leadership style. His power of oratory, his firm grasp of complex financial and administrative details, his knowledge of Athens' resources, and his incorruptibility encouraged the people to give more weight to his views. And so he evolved into the preeminent politician of the age with a gravitas that none of his contemporaries could match. So what Plutarch says is probably true, that following the ostracism of Thucydides, Pericles was no longer the same man as before, who, quote, yielded and gave in to the desires of the multitude as a steerman to the breezes, end quote. But now he was more of an aristocratic statesman who did what was in the interest of all of the people, not just the lower classes. As a result, there were times where the demos was upset with him, and so, quote, he tightened the reins and forced them towards a path for their advantage with a master's hand, end quote. Thucydides says, quote, what appeared to be a democracy was in reality the rule by the leading citizen, end quote. While this says more about Pericles' dominant position within the state, it can give a misleading picture of Athenian politics. For all of his influence and power, Pericles was as accountable to the people as was any other public official in the democracy, and so he could never take the demos and its decision-making power in the ecclesia for granted. Every time, he had to convince them of the worth of his proposals, and most of the time, he had the charisma, cunning, and oratorical skills necessary to convince them, as well as to manipulate them, if necessary. It should also be understood that in spite of Pericles' strong leadership, that doesn't mean that he faced no opposition after the ostracism of Thucydides. His friends also weren't immune, as preeminence in democratic Athens was not equivalent to absolute rule. In fact, Plutarch records that the enemies of Pericles brought a series of personal and judicial attacks on him and his three closest associates around the same time in the 430s BC. These three, Phidias, Aspasia, and Anaxagoras, were a part of his intellectual circle and had a position of influence with him. And so these attacks were aimed at discrediting Pericles and removing him from the leadership of the people. Plutarch says that Pericles' position was so threatened by the opposition's attacks on his friends and himself that he deliberately provoked the Peloponnesian War by refusing any concessions over the Megarian Decree in order to save his political career. We will discuss the Megarian Decree more next episode, but most scholars believe that the attacks happened much earlier in the decade, between 438 and 437 BC, and that there is no connection between the attacks and the Megarian Decree, which was issued in 432 BC. It seems that the first attack was against Phidias, who, as we discussed in episodes 56 and 65, was in charge of all building projects on the Acropolis. In particular, he was famed for his sculpture of large Chryselephantine statues. In 438 BC, he had completed his great statue of Athena Parthenos for the Parthenon that was worth a hundred talents of gold and ivory. We've already discussed how Pericles' enemies felt about such large expenditures on public works, so it's no surprise then that in the following year, in 437 BC, according to Plutarch, the enemies of Pericles tried to attack him through his friend Phidias, who they accused of embezzlement. Specifically, he was charged with shortchanging the amount of gold and ivory from the material that was supposed to be used on the statue of Athena Parthenos, and keeping the extra for himself. The prosecutor was Menon, an artist who worked with Phidias, but it is clear that he was acting on behalf of others. Plutarch writes, quote, Some of the people were attempting, through him, meaning Phidias, to test the mood of the people in a case that involved Pericles, end quote. However, Pericles had foreseen the possibility of such a charge and had ensured that when the statue was being created, that the gold was put on in such a way that it could be removed. And so they removed and weighed it. Phidias' innocence was proven, and he was acquitted on this charge. But that wouldn't be the end of Pericles and Phidias' troubles. Around the same time, a man named Dracontides moved a decree that required Pericles to deposit his financial accounts in connection to his building program with the pretanes of the boule and that the jurors should pass judgment on him with voting ballots that had lain on the altar of Athena. The investigation into Pericles' accounts must have been related to his position as one of the board of supervisors of Athena's statue, and as Phidias' immediate superior. This then was a concerted attack on both Phidias and Pericles, and their handling of the financial accounts of the statue, 
which would explain the religious dimension of Dracontide's decree concerning the sanctified voting tablets, since the case involved theft of sacred materials. Hagnon, though, who was a political ally of Pericles, managed to persuade the people to remove this religious element in the bill and to try the case with 1,500 jurors in the ordinary, secular manner. And so, just as before with Phidias, the people here also found Pericles to not be guilty. The opposition was undeterred, though, and so they prosecuted Phidias for a second time, this time on a charge of impiety for representing himself and Pericles in the sculptures of the Amazonomachy, which adorned the shield of the statue of Athena Parthenos. In particular, he was said to have carved himself as a balding old man and inserted a likeness of Pericles fighting with an Amazon. According to Plutarch, Phidias was found guilty, imprisoned, and died in jail. Philochorus, though, who was a Greek historian of the 3rd century BC, says that Phidias didn't die in Athens, but after his conviction, he fled to Elis, where he worked on the colossal statue for the Temple of Zeus at Olympia, which was one of the seven wonders of antiquity. And upon its completion, he was put to death by the aliens. Regardless of the order of events, he was involved with the colossal statue of Zeus at Olympia, and he died after being found guilty in Athens, and it's likely that both the embezzlement and impiety charges were fabricated and politically motivated as a result of his friendship with Pericles. Around the same time that Phidias was being charged with impiety, the same charge was leveled against Aspasia. She was from Miletus, and as we discussed in episode 71, she has traditionally been identified by scholars as a high-class courtesan, or hetaira, though that identification is by no means the consensus. Regardless, besides displaying physical beauty, since hetairai were foreigners, they were free of the legal restraints that traditionally confined married women to their homes, and so were allowed to participate in public life. They were educated, often to a high standard, and were prized for their intelligent conversations and social skills on various topics from history to art to politics. Regardless if she was a hetaira or not, Aspasia had the highest reputation of all the foreign women in Athens. Socrates even loved conversing with her, and she left such an impression on Pericles that he fell in love with her, not just for her physical beauty, but because of her immense political wisdom. And so, although he had two sons already, named Perilus and Xanthippus, he divorced his Athenian wife just to be with her, sometime in the mid-440s BC. Her name is not mentioned, but as was custom, she was a member of the Alcmeonidae, and Pericles was her second husband. All that we know of her is that she originally was the wife of Hipponicus and the mother of Callias III from this first marriage. Anyways, after Pericles divorced her, he offered her to another husband in the Alcmeonidae clan, with the agreement of her male relatives. Pericles, though he wasn't allowed to marry Aspasia, according to Athenian law, would stay only with her for the rest of his life. She even bore him a son out of wedlock, sometime by 440 BC, who was named Pericles the Younger. He so loved Aspasia that Plutarch even remarks that he would publicly kiss her before going off to the Agora or the law courts each day, and again when he returned. Public displays of affection like this were very uncommon back then. He was also ridiculed behind his back for treating her as an equal. This relationship aroused many reactions, and even Pericles' own son, the young Xanthippus, who had political ambitions of his own, did not hesitate to slander his father. Besides the tabloid stuff, Plutarch seems to think that she was responsible for Pericles deciding to attack Samos, which was fighting Miletus, her home polis, over the possession of Priene. Athens' intervention led Samos to revolt from the empire, and the campaign cost much money and heavy casualties before Samos was defeated. We will discuss the Samian War next episode, but it took place from 440 to 439 BC. It was never proven that she had persuaded Pericles to intercede on behalf of Miletus, but Aspasia became very unpopular in Athens after the Samian War. According to Plutarch, she was even accused in comedy of corrupting the women of Athens in order to satisfy Pericles' perversions. And sometime in 438-437 BC, once her unpopularity reached its greatest level, which left her vulnerable to any sort of political prosecution, she too was put on trial on the charge of impiety, with the comic poet Hermippus as a prosecutor. The specific grounds, though, are not clear. The accusations against her were probably nothing more than slander, like with Phidias, but the whole experience was very bitter for Pericles. During her trial, he shocked the jury by openly weeping at the thought of losing her, receiving an acquittal for his efforts. 
The historical nature of this trial is disputed, though, as it is unlikely that a non-Athenian woman could be subjected to legal charges of this kind, though her protector, or Curios, might be, who in this case was Pericles, and no harm came to her or Pericles as a result. Almost immediately after Phidias and Aspasia were prosecuted, a man named Diopathus brought forward a decree authorizing that atheism and teaching about the heavens were to be considered public crimes. This probably was directed against the philosopher Anaxagoras, another close friend of Pericles. According to Diogenes Laertes, in his later life, all of Anaxagoras' unique views on the universe, which we discussed in episode 84, caused him to be prosecuted for impiety as well, sometime in 438-437 BC. Unfortunately, we don't know much about the trial, just that his close friend Pericles spoke in his defense of the jury. The charges may have been political, owing to his association with Pericles, but then again, his theories on the cosmic mind is not at all like traditional Greek religious thought, so he may have actually been accused of impiety because he was saying impious things. Plutarch relays a somewhat different account, though, by saying that Anaxagoras avoided a trial as Pericles had sent his former tutor out of Athens for his own safety after the Athenians began to blame him for the First Peloponnesian War, which we discussed in episode 42. Regardless of how and when, Anaxagoras was forced to retire from Athens to Lampsacus in the Troad. So who was responsible for the series of judicial attacks on Pericles and his close friends? Well, in 438-437 BC, Thucydides would have still been in ostracism, so he can be discounted. In addition, the nature of the attacks, as anti-intellectual and protective of traditional religion through prosecutions on the grounds of impiety, would also seem to suggest a different source for the opposition to Pericles than the wealthy conservatives. This direct appeal to the ultra-conservative views on traditional religion is much more in keeping with the style of the new politicians, the so-called demagogues. The rise, the methods, and the influence of this new type of politician are the main themes of Aristophanes the Knights, and he particularly focuses on Cleon, who came to prominence in the first year of the Peloponnesian War and dominated Athenian politics in the 420s BC following Pericles' death. But he also mentions two predecessors of Cleon, named Eucrates and Lysicles, and so they must have been active in the 430s BC, as Cleon must have also been, assuming that their rise to fame didn't just appear out of nowhere, but was a process, as most political movements are. Their opposition to Pericles may have been based on his cautious, in their estimation, policy with regard to the Allies and the Spartans, or maybe they disliked Pericles' aristocratic circle of friends, who formed a sort of the establishment, to use modern jargon, and occupied the most important offices of the state. Or maybe they had just personal ambition to replace him as the leader of the Demos. More than likely, it was a combination of all three. One or more of them may be the shadowy figures who encouraged Menon to accuse Phidias in order to test Pericles' popularity. According to Plutarch, at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, the comic poet Hermippus criticized the cowardice of Pericles and supported Cleon. So maybe his support for Cleon, as well as Cleon's associates, went years back, and that is why he prosecuted Aspasia for impiety. Finally, according to Aristophanes in the Knights, oracle-mongering, or using oracles to scare the people into doing your bidding, was practiced often by Diopithes, who was the author of the decree against Anaxagoras, as well as by the demagogues. So taking all of the circumstantial evidence together, it seems likely that Cleon and his associates were behind the series of attacks on Pericles and his friends in the early 430s BC. Despite being attacked by multiple political factions in the late 440s and early 430s BC, Pericles' political reputation emerged relatively unscathed. This is evidenced by the fact that his policies were preeminent in the conduct of Athenian affairs during the breakdown of the Thirty Years' Peace leading up to the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War. And it's that breakdown of peace that we shall turn our focus to next. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 89, The Breakdown of Peace. Thank you.